Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the uh, now EU-free, or perhaps not, we shall see, UK. <laughs> and today on this, the 29th of June 2016, it's great to be speaking once again to Tony Gosling, who joined us once before back in the very distant past of 2013. And I'm relying upon information I had then, so Tony might correct me when I say uh, he is an investigative radio journalist, formerly working for the BBC at Greater London Radio, BBC Radio Solent, BBC Wiltshire Sound, but now he has a weekly politics show called Friday Drive Time with BCFM, Bristol Community FM. I hope I got that right. Hi, Tony. Well, that was pretty much correct in 2013. Uh, It's now just called The Politics Show, the BCFM Politics Show we do every Friday. The first hour we get a local politician in, one sort or another. Occasionally we'll just have journalists and no politicians around discussing the politicians because sometimes... uh, you know, that seems helpful to get the politicians out of the way for a little bit. But in, and in the second half of the show, between six and seven every Friday, uh, we do some investigative journalism, the sort of stuff that you won't see anywhere on our TV screens or here on our radio, on national London media at all, broadcast anywhere. And that's, I suppose, my main um, job, I see it anyway, as an investigative journalist, is to just churn this stuff, turn it round, get it out there, because nobody's doing it. I mean, there used to be This Week, World in Action, First Tuesday, Rough Justice, a whole load of programmes that anybody that felt that they had an important scandal to get out could go to phone up bbc itv channel 4 maybe one of the national radio broadcasters and just get this stuff out and now there's nowhere there really isn't anywhere i mean there's even insulting programs like there's one on i think it's a saturday or maybe sunday lunchtime on radio five live five live investigates but it's it just doesn't it's it hardly even scratches the surface trivial issues things that don't really matter so what we try and do is really pull politics apart pull the powerful apart and find out how things are really decided because what we're getting from the london media newspapers radio and television the news coverage is tiny little sound bites and there's no context there's no real explanation of how the events are unfolding fit in for example things like terrorist attacks they're not even assessing one terrorist attack before it's the time for the next one and we're just uh, supposed to believe the official line the government line and as the bbc drifts towards becoming basically a state broadcaster bullying particularly from the conservative government uh, over the last six years or so uh, and that is really dangerous it's a 1984 style situation we're going towards where you know there's this official version of what's happened sanctioned by the government news you know yeah. Well, we did have the uh, the conspiracy file series on the BBC. That wasn't so bad, was it? Uh, it was appalling. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's one of the worst. I mean, actually, the David Kelly one of those was quite good, but it just shows you you can't go very far on the BBC anymore in questioning official government stories. You know, the, the one on Princess Diana was diabolical compared to the actual evidence that's out there. And this is what they do all the time, Julian, is they what they'll do is they'll find a couple of nutters yeah. and use them to represent the contra-government point of view. And people like myself who've, you know, spit blood in trying to get the real dope on some of these stories. I mean, 
we were in a situation where maybe we didn't realise it, but actually there's an increasingly criminalised elite who like to think they can control things. And, and one of the things that I suppose illustrates that is the way we've had this incredible backlash against the referendum for Brexit over the last few days where, yeah. you know, the whole establishment has basically termed. I mean, the BBC has been wall to wall. Every single news line and perspective has been, you know, why did we make this terrible decision mm. in one way or another? There's been no real acknowledgement that uh, people have lost livelihoods uh, which is you know it's only one side of the discussion but we're not getting that side well i do want to ask you about that a little bit later on in the interview and i have to say that i've not looked at all into any of the diana material so it's not something that i can comment upon um perhaps uh, file on four on radio <laughs> four would cover that well, chance i mean, to <laughs> I mean actually, you have to say I, they have done some good things haven't they so I, I, they have and i work with a guy i probably better not name him who went on to do some very good file on four um for radio four and he was looking at uh, for example the role of prince bernhard of the netherlands the long-time bilderberg chairman from the foundation of the Bilderberg conferences uh, and his role in Royal Dutch Airlines in smuggling Nazi war criminals out from Germany at the end of the Second World War and just after the Second World War as part of Operation Paperclip, you know, the US mission. But, I mean, that was a fantastic program. But Final on 4 doesn't really do that kind of thing anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, that segues brilliantly into what we were going to talk about, of course, which is your Bilderberg experience. You were over there a few weeks ago in Dresden. Have you recovered? <laughs> I mean, when you sent me that email, you said, I mean, let me quote your email. You said, wow, what a week. <laughs> they were very edgy this time. Obvious to me something in the offing. What and when? Who knows? Military were in there first, presumably for a pre-meeting meeting. So, I mean, why did you write, uh, wow, what a week? Uh, edgy. Yeah, that's definitely the word I would use to describe the steering committee members that I spoke to. Uh, I mean, they've got this weird thing, Julian, which beggars belief, really, where you've got about about 500 German police on permanent duty that it must have been through us, three shifts through the day. So that's probably 1,500 police permanently there uh, on the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of the conference. I don't know how much the pay was for that, but we're footing the bill, the German public are footing the bill for it, not so Bilderberg. They, well, they weren't, they weren't private police then? No, no, this is official polizei. And some of them were extremely aggressive, bullying some of the activists who were there, who were arrested, one couple, Maria, I forget the name of the other chap, but they were from Britain, from Hull she was, and uh, they just had a piece of cardboard and a pen and they hadn't even written anything, anything on it, and a piece of bread and a tent, and they were arrested because they thought, the police thought that these could be weapons used against the Bilderbergs. They were literally thrown bodily into this police van, taken around the corner uh, to a park where none of the journalists could see, and then... I wouldn't say beaten up, but very roughly handled and uh, kept there for the best part of an hour. And then uh, Maria was released and told, well, you hadn't been arrested. Um, so we're not going to announce to the media that you've been arrested because we didn't arrest you. So, you know, there's all sorts of nasty stuff. They, they describe the police treatment as fascist. And this is no mean word in Germany to be using. But look, the point being, you've got all these cops, these 1,500 police every day uh, over the three shifts, policing this conference, massive amount of policing and, and all around the edge and these big fence. And yet on the Saturday, the Bilderbergers just open the gates and wander out, you know. So what is going on with the security? Is, what is, what's the point of it? What's it necessary? I think it's actually to do with trying to make sure that any conversations that happen in there stay silent. The security is not to stop people getting at the Bilderbergers, that's for sure, because they came out and I spoke to two of them, James A. Johnson, who's the bagman for Hillary Clinton, collecting the money, go 
Goldman Sachs, uh, former Fannie Mae uh, chief executive, I think, when it all went bust. So he's a complete failed chief executive, and yet there he is on the board of Goldman Sachs and doing all the fundraising for Hillary Clinton. And then I also met Jacob Wallenberg, basically the kind of Rothschild-style big super banker for Sweden, and their, their family's been in charge of banking in Sweden ever since before World War II, actually. But both James A. Johnson and Jacob Wallenberg simply turned on their heels when I was asking them very politely, would they like to say good or bad or over Brexit? Do they think it's going to be good or bad? Neither of them would answer. Both of them very, very, I would use the word edgy. And James A. Johnson was particularly rude, just shouting at me and saying, get out of here. Even though we were, he was saying this is a private space. It wasn't. It, we were in a public square in the middle of Dresden uh, and he was sitting on a chair in this public square. And I asked him a question. These people don't normally get recognized. If you were to meet a Bilderberg steering committee member uh, in the street passing you in the opposite direction, you probably wouldn't recognize their face because they are absolutely off the radar as regards the media. They never do media interviews apart from maybe one or two like the, the ministers, or the, the government people. Uh, you might possibly recognize them. But this is one of the things that I really must put across the people who are running the Western world, which is these guys, are just faces you would never recognize, and they love it. They love that sense of being able to wander out, wander around, be in charge, and nobody even knows who they are. Yeah, I mean, the last time you were on a couple of years, it was three years ago, in fact, you gave us both what you described as the official history of the Bilderberg Group and the unofficial history. It was very interesting, and obviously we haven't got time to go through all that. Again, I will direct people, please go back and listen to that interview, because Tony gave us a lot of information about that. So, um, I mean, most people will be familiar with this group, but there are lots of ideas floating around about what it actually is. But could you give us a kind of brief summary of not so much the history of it, but what it actually is today? How would you describe it? Very simple. It's vetting. It's vetting our future leaders, vetting maybe possible newspaper chiefs, potential heads of parties, political parties, um, opposition parties around uh, the NATO countries. And it's very much focused around NATO, which is why I said in that little uh, email I sent you about the military meeting beforehand. I mean, this is Petraeus turning up uh, before the official meeting had started. I think it was on the Thursday, but he was there earlier than the rest. And you can see what's happening there is a kind of coterie of the military people who use Bilderberg as an opportunity to meet a little bit before the rest of the guests get there, which does give an idea of who's really in charge. Uh, and Andreas von Bülow, he went to the Bilderberg conference and he was the German defence minister, I think under Helmut Schmidt in the 1980s. He was saying in the German press beforehand, very interesting, I thought, he's saying, look, and this is one of the things I thought for years, it's great to hear someone else saying it really, especially a former defence minister of Germany, that uh, they say, they pitch it out as something that's about social policy. In fact, that's quite right. If you read their press release, which now does go out to the press rather than gets hidden by the press as it did when I first started looking into things uh, is that they're, they're saying it's about social policy no it's not it's really about war and when I say vetting I mean basically they're listening out for all these new people that they've invited possible up-and-coming politicians media chiefs to see if they say anything which is against their policy, against Pentagon <laughs> policy, and so if they do, yeah, yeah. they won't. They will, they will find them. Their, their star will start to fall, you know. <laughs> and uh, by one reason or another, maybe they'll have either a car crash, or else more likely they'll be have some sort of sex scandal or be removed from power by other means. I mean, Will Hutton went in the 1990s. He was the editor of the Observer at the time, and very very shortly after, as he was removed as editor, that sort of thing, because mm. he was just basically uh, not. 
in line with what they wanted. So that, I think, is it in a nutshell. So how important is it actually these days? Because, you know, lots of people point to other groups around the place, CFR, Trilateral Commission. I mean, Pat Wood's been on the show a number of times. He would identify the Trilateral Commission as being the most important group in the world today. So you disagree with that? Well, it's because it's uh, so absolutely focused around NATO. And NATO is so absolutely focused around the deals done between the Nazis and the traitors within the Allies at the end of the Second World War. I mean, if you look back at, uh, there's a great quote actually from a guy called Paul Hauser. He was uh, in charge of an SS Panzer Corps in the Second World War. And he, after the war, he became the chairman of the SS Veterans Association because that was very active after the war, quite clearly. The Americans had decided they wanted to bring a lot of SS people over to the States and bring the SS on board, really, in uh, the Cold War to help fight the Russians. And so he had quite an important role, Hauser. But he said the first meetings of NATO were uh, made up from the international supporters of the SS. In fact, the SS was in a way a kind of foreign legion. I mean, we had, they had Viking division uh, where it, even British uh, Nazi supporters enrolled and swore their hideous oaths to Hitler uh, to join that SS division. And even the white Russians had an, uh, I heard, <laughs> amazingly enough, the white Russians had an SS Panzer division as well. Uh, so these were the people who'd been fighting the communists and the Bolsheviks. They were given all this uh, rather handy tiger tanks and this kind of stuff by the Nazis. And uh, they were on the Eastern Front at the end of the war. They they were sort of twiddling their thumbs and they ended up going to South America after having threatened the Swiss that they were going to start blasting Switzerland with their Panzers. And the Swiss, of course, gave them a lot of money and safe passage instead and they swap them for all their tanks so there there is definitely been a big international contingent in the SS during the war and these people were brought in to start NATO so that's why I think Bilderberg is more important than the Trilateral Commission which includes Japan and these more peripheral to NATO countries I mean it's one level down Trilateral Commission I think from Bilderberg the Council of Foreign Relations is a national body in the US just like the Royal Institute for International Affairs is in in England Bilderberg brings them all together and allows the people that really try and decide things the Kissingers of this world the military industrial complex that makes money from war and it's purely i think actually purely profit motive there is maybe a spiritual dimension to all the bad karma around it but that's basically what they're doing is they're making money out of wars so they need to have constant new wars in order to keep the old uh, machines grinding and making weapons selling weapons selling munitions killing people this is you know where they get off and where they get their profits And you've said, I think I've heard you in some interview recently say that they've had a tremendous influence upon the mainstream media in the West since really from their very early days. You know, it's why it wasn't reported on for a very long time. Is that still a speciality of theirs to dominate the media? Let's look at the very first German invited to Bilderberg in 1954. Thomas Muller, I think his name was, uh, he was a lawyer, listed as a lawyer, but... uh, Klaus Kopf, who was a political scientist, discovered that he wasn't actually just a lawyer. He was on the list for the first meeting in 1954. He was also the founder of the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, which is one of the main Mm. newspapers in Germany. I mean, they have a different system, a much better system in Germany, where the big regional cities have their own national paper. We concentrate all hours obsessively in London, which is a total disaster, of course. You know, there used to be things like the Manchester Guardian, which were a national paper coming from Manchester, the Glasgow Herald, 
is much better than the London papers because it's coming from the regions. So we need an international and national perspective from the regions, definitely. Yeah, and yeah. it's extremely unhealthy the way it's concentrated. It's it interesting that the paper that you've just mentioned there, I believe that was the paper where the editor Udo Ulfkotter said that he and others around Europe have been paid basically by the CIA to uh, put stories into the media. Exactly. Right, yeah. Anyway, so this guy was the founder of the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung in 1954. He was at the first ever Bilderberg conference. Uh, so he knew which side his bread was buttered on and they had him under their thumb straight away. One of the fascinating things Klaus told me about uh, – I mean, first of all, he was also saying that his head of peace studies at Hamburg Peace Studies Institute told him – Bilderberg decides on peace and war. You better not study this, otherwise you might have some personal problems. And anyway, you won't find out anything about it. And if you do, you will have personal problems. So don't study it, whatever you do. And if you do, your career will be over before it's even started. That's what Klaus was told by the head of this institute in Hamburg. But he's also he was also told by Rudolf Müller's former secretary who was the only person still alive who could remember the 1950s she was very pointed about it she said i was never allowed to touch any bilderberg papers it was all totally secret and that um it's lovely to meet klaus over there but this is the killer as far as i was concerned that he was invited by the head of the secret service in germany in 1954 came to him personally to invite him to go and holding his hand when he came to invite him in early may 1954 was Cardinal Frings, who's the Vatican's representative in Cologne in Germany. So what you've got there is a, the Vatican inviting the first newspaper man to the very first ever Bilderberg meeting. I was pretty stunned. <laughs> Tentacles all over the place. But I mean, how did they ever get to be heard about in the mainstream media? Because I mean, thinking back to the beginning of the 1990s, I heard about its existence on the Dr. Stanley Monteith Radio Liberty program that was mentioned like, you know, it was a conspiracy theory. That's how it was treated by anybody else at that time. But then it became, is it mid-1990s? It came out in various ways. How did that happen? Well, probably when I built the Bilderberg.org domain on the internet and started putting up lists of them because there have never been proper lists up online before that. I mean, this is the early days of the internet. and uh, Yeah, but how did the mainstream pick up on that? Presumably they weren't interested in what you were doing? Well, okay. I mean, they, I don't know if they still have picked up on it properly. Uh, certainly, I mean, we can only talk about the British press because we don't necessarily read things like the Dutch papers, the Italian papers and that sort of thing. And many parts of the coverage either say it's kind of this air of mystery, you know, nobody really knows what is this organisation. Uh, the other way it's spun is that it's just a, some sort of crazy conspiracy theorist's nightmare or whatever. There's some load of rubbish talked about it, like it's the moon landings or something. Well, so people still talk about it like that? Well, they compare it to that sort of conspiracy theory nonsense. But look, the conspiracy theory meme was manufactured in 1965 by the Central Intelligence Agency uh, in the US because people were getting close to the truth about the Kennedy assassination. And they, they, yeah. they were assassination theories were rife in the American news newspapers and the CIA decided we're going to have to have a new term conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist uh, to brand the people and the theories that they're coming up with about the Lyndon Johnson and the CIA and the FBI being behind Kennedy's assassination which of course they were so this is just a trick psychological warfare on the public via the national media in order to divert people's attention and you know so make it's kind of mollycoddling really to try and make people think that there's nothing wrong when there is mm. 
Yes, I wish I could bring up that particular... There is um, a document, isn't there? I just wish I could bring it up. Uh, I think it is just here. It is CIA 1035-960 Countering Criticism of the Warren Report. That's the one, isn't it? The Warren Commission, yeah. And it's great you quoting these numbers. I did an interview over in Dresden. I mean, sometimes you're listening to someone talking to you and you... I mean, this is very rare, but my jaw dropped when this guy started chatting. I, I think he was a lawyer. His name is Volker Reusing, and he's from Wuppertal, and he runs something called Unser Politik Blog. I'd never come across it, and I would never have come across it probably if I hadn't actually been to Bilderberg and met the chap. But he was giving me a whole rundown on some stuff which he was using those sorts of, you know, this clause, that number, this law, this date, and all this kind of thing. And it is important to use those references because it enables you to check it up. And I did check it up. And he was right. The European Union has brought in new laws without anybody realising, particularly the mainstream press, which enable politicians and other powerful people who've had things written about them in the press, which are true, but which they don't like, enables them to then sue the journalist and the newspaper for not doing a data protection impact assessment because the data protection impact assessment should include in it an assessment of whether or not the person is going to be upset by what has been printed no matter whether it's true or not. So these can go up to millions of euros of fines on individual journalists and newspapers. So this is basically a recipe to destroy any kind of free press. Now, you know, I, I think that we should know about that kind of law that, that's been passed. The other thing wow. he was looking at was what they call a nation-state bankruptcy procedure, which is where a country like Greece or possibly Britain or any other country that can't pay its debts to Deutsche Bank or to HSBC or whoever it happens to be, then they go through a basically a kind of a commercial bankruptcy procedure in the courts. And this is law that's been passed through the European Parliament but has been not reported at all. And the only country, he said anyway, I mean, I haven't checked this part of it, but he said the only country that refused to agree to this um, nation-state bankruptcy procedure uh, was Germany. And so Germany is allowed to keep its civil service, keep its police and keep its army, but all the other countries are only allowed to keep their parliaments and the sovereign state itself and not the rest of it. All the rest of it can be privatised when the state goes bankrupt. Now, you know, I think we should know about this kind of thing. And it just shows you how woefully inadequate our press is and why it's such a wonderful thing to go to the Bilderberg conferences to meet people who really care about our future, proper citizen journalists, rather than these... I think actually morons, a lot of them, that are working for the mainstream press. And I think they're deliberately employed because they don't ask questions. So those are two pieces of European legislation that have been passed. Yes, both right? of them. Give me the links to those, could you? Yeah, you can look it up on Unser Politik blog. Uh, and the guy's name's Volker Reusing. I also, the interview uh, I did with him is online. It's called uh, Bilderberg Exposed in Dresden 3. And you'll find that on YouTube and you'll find it on various places on, on the internet. A couple of people already have, have uh, copied it, thank goodness. But it's, you know, this is why I do this kind of thing because you never know quite what it's going to turn up. And I'm always pleasantly surprised by one scoop or another, even if it is often quite dark and irritating and, you know, makes you really realize just how wicked some of the people who are in power and in charge i mean basically they they are treating us almost like farmers farming
farming animals. You know, it brings to mind Animal Farm and Orwell. He also has another thing you said in the email, actually. Is, I didn't is, quote, yeah. is, you know, it does seem like that's the way they look at us, is that this is just a machine that is processing people. They want a whole bunch of people as slaves, effectively. And if they start stepping out of line, whether it's journalists or politicians, they're just going to lose their jobs. So you know, there is a criminal elite who are basically protecting themselves. It's a gang, effectively, that are running the Western world. And I'm not saying that the Chinese, the Russians, etc., don't have gangster qualities. I think they do. But I think we are making all the running in the West, and we really need to be ashamed of ourselves and put our own house in order. Well, this brings me to another question. You say it's centred in the West. Um, I mean, one of the things often said about the Bilderberg Group in the alt media is that they're intent upon world government, ultimately. Um, Now, I presume often that's meant not so much the group itself, but made up of people who, by and large, at least in the inner core, you know, share some sort of ideology of world government. Would you say that's actually fair to say, or is it really centred and concentrating really on Western parochial matters? Well, you're you're sort of bringing you're bringing back some of the cartoons that I watched as a teenager, young teenager, I must say. You know, I, that I used to watch on the telly, where you get this some sort of he wants to take over the world, yes. you know, some kind of crazy madman. Well, it isn't quite so crazy because these people are hooked on power. It's like heroin; they cannot do without it. And I think that's partly because of their criminals and they know that at some point somebody else might have the power to put handcuffs on them and put them in jail. So it's quite a, a kind of vicious circle that they're in. And, you know, in a way, I think we need to pray for these people. You might find that a strange thing to say because I think that they they feel that everybody hates them, whereas we don't. You know, we just want them to... I suppose, back away from some of the worst plans that they might be tempted to pursue and, and possibly do a jail term. But then, you know, that that's only fair and it's only moral that they should do that. And, and I, I don't think that hate should have any part of that. But, you know, this, I think, is the mentality, Julian, which is driving these people. It's a basic criminality. I mean, look, for example, I mean, uh, Henry Kissinger in the, the spider in the middle of the Bilderberg conferences. I mean, he's been involved in massive crimes, irresponsible for the deaths of millions of people, very much involved in this whole sort of war on terror mentality. And he's then coming out and saying, oh, I don't know if this is a good idea. Butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. You know, they're, they're behind the crimes and yet they're sometimes the only people in the press who are saying oh but maybe this isn't the right thing to do this is complete control via the media via the press and we're in a i think very perilous state when the press is not asking questions about very basic things like you know things like the joe cox murder uh, the mp just before the brexit vote very similar thing happened in 2003 in the swedish referendum with the swedish mp anna lint being murdered i haven't heard and i have listened a lot i'm must say i haven't heard a single person in the broadcast media or in the london press compare the two because that that's what needs to be done i mean these are very similar sorts of incidents uh, mentally ill people uh, involved in these and possible links to the military as well possibly i'm not you know saying that's definite but we need to investigate that if the military are behind this the military may be and certainly mentally ill people may be it can't really be a coincidence. There's such a similar kind of set of circumstances behind the, the killer of Anna Lint and the killer 
it seems, because we are subdued to see at the moment, you know, the alleged killer of Joe Cox. Well, it could be a coincidence, but I see what you mean. It does actually suggest that it's something really worth looking into. Yeah. Well, I think the military are using people who are mentally ill to carry out these assassinations or even to just simply blame them for the assassinations and doing those assassinations with mercenaries. I mean, that seems to me what's what's happening. That's certainly the kind of attitude that was going on under Operation Gladio in the 1970s and 1980s. Well, I accept that it is something that needs to be investigated. Yeah, I I take you on that point. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, we've already mentioned about the EU, and one thing that was buzzing around in my mind was to what extent the EU is actually a creation of the Bilderberg Group. And I ask that because there are different views on this. I mean, there's uh, Richard Aldrich in a piece that I mentioned when I was speaking to Paul Craig Roberts last time. It's called OSS, CIA and European Unity, the American Committee on United Europe, 1948 to 1960. Um, And uh, a little quote from there. It is clear that the Rome Treaty, that's 1957, was nurtured by discussions at Bilderberg in the preceding year. So it seems pretty clear there that uh, there is involvement. But when I turn to Richard North, Christopher Booker in their book, The uh, Great Deception, The Secret History of the European Union, they give a rather different view. Let me just quote that. The many of its, that is the Bilderberg Group, members played an active role in the history of the European integration and decades later the supposed influence of the group was to become the focus of popular conspiracy theory. But as such, the group played no direct part whatsoever in the integration process which began with Monet's Schumann plan in 1950, four years before the first Bilderberg meeting took place. So who's right on that? Well, uh, look, the Treaty of Rome was formed uh, effectively put together by the Bilderbergs and the Treaty of Rome was mainly between the Italians, the Axis powers and the Germans, the French involved a bit, mostly Vichy French, to put it together. That's absolutely clear. There's one brilliant source for this article published in the late 90s in Lobster magazine, Mike Peters' Bilderberg and the Project for European Unification. I mean, he, he spells it all out. Mike is an absolutely wonderful guy. He's a professor of sociology. Uh, he was. He's retired now at Leeds Metropolitan University. And he does an academic paper like no one I've ever seen because it's witty. He even uses, because the film The Silence of the Lambs was around at the time, and he, he has a whole kind of heading for his academic paper, I use the word academic, you know, in big inverted commas, the silence of the academics. And he's saying basically, look, this is just completely taboo within academia and how disgusting it is that it is that these people call themselves uh, international relations professors and students and authors and just don't mention the Bilderberg because it's right in the middle of it all. No, they were definitely behind the EU and Paul Craig Roberts is right on that one. Okay. Um, Interesting stuff. Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the official agenda that was published. Nine or ten items that I've got here. Can I ask you a couple of things about what you think may have been talked about? Is anything about genetics on the list there? Genetics? Um, No, I don't see that. That's funny, isn't it? Because we overheard a conversation of one of the Bilderbergers talking about genetics. Tell you what, technological innovation it might have come under. (laughs) Mm, Well, that's a thousand things, isn't it? I mean, that's artificial intelligence. That's taking over governments, you know, using Palantir technologies. I, I think they deliberately skew 
that list that they give out to make it look less worrying than it is. And it is worrying. Look, one of the things I learned from an American German who was over there at the conference was, and I totally agree with him now, he just pointed it out to me, saying, look, Eric Schmidt at Google has taken over from David Rockefeller. The Rockefeller family were the great monopolists of the United States, the cartel people, and Paul Manning writes about the cartels in his book, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, uh, and uh, about the deals done between American Nazis, and there were plenty of them around in the coup in 1934. They tried to kick out Roosevelt, uh, for example, uh, and uh, that's basically what we're dealing with is cartels, people who've decided they are owning all of our industry. This is why small businesses are going down and down and down. Only big business is going to be allowed to survive. Money-making is a cult. Power is a cult. But look, the point being that the old monopolies of uh, standard oil and the oil industry – uh, which were broken up but not broken up. Of course, you know, they all work together, these big oil companies. Uh, they're now being replaced by the internet monopolies. So the people like the Bilderbergers, the really powerful people, have decided that they're going to control the media and they're going to do it through people like Microsoft, Google, Apple possibly. But it, it's made – I mean, there had been a lot of competition between Microsoft and Google for a long, long time. If you look, you'll find just earlier this year, February or something, loads of lawsuits by Google against Microsoft were dropped and suddenly they're being all friendly with each other. This is because they're now part of a cartel, and they will make arrangements just like the Nazi cartels did, uh, people like Thiessen, Krups, IG Farben, and Standard Oil, whereby all contracts which are commercial or government contracts are shared out equally amongst the cartels, so there will be no real competition whatsoever. David Rockefeller himself said, actually I think it was John Rockefeller, his father, competition is sin. That's the result of deregulation. But this is quite scary because this is the whole future of the media, the press, which is all going towards the internet effectively in all sorts of different ways, digitally certainly. This yeah. is where we're going. Google and Eric Schmidt represents and all the other technology companies that have been to Bilderberg, Amazon, we're talking about LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, there are several others. Obviously, Microsoft is a big one. But they are basically going to run things in the future as a cartel. And I think that's one of the messages I would take home from the Dresden meeting is we need to stop mm. that. And this very much dovetails with one of the other things that was said about that meeting that they talked about Internet ID, a Europe-wide Internet ID card being issued. I read about this in uh, Brabart reporting on this at the beginning of June, an article called The European Commission Wants You to Log Into Social Media Accounts with Government-Issued ID Cards. Um, is that your, your understanding? They talked about that. Well, look, I did an interview with Julie Beale about this. You can find it on mm -hmm. YouTube. She's just a mum, single mum. And this is the thing I love about journalism. Sometimes you find some people who are just on the ball. And she was. She did a brilliant interview with me. Mm -hmm. uh, this is about two years ago now, maybe two and a half years. And it is extraordinary that this ID system, which, of course, could possibly be linked with the uh, chip and pin in our cards and eventually into a microchip uh, implanted into our bodies, that this is going to be owned and controlled by private businesses, private companies. And, of course, the problem there is this is going back to effectively, Julian, what is the ancient Egyptian system of money where you don't have anything which is actually valuable, that is to say a coin or a note even, which can be exchanged for anything. You're just part of a ledger system. They have a ledger system, which is what the ancient Egyptians used to have, a credit kind of system where you'd, they checked to see how much money you got and then you were allowed to do stuff with it or not. So you don't have anything that's actually of any intrinsic value yourself. You don't have any rights to it. You're just a number on a board somewhere. And that's where we're going with all 
all this stuff and it's all going to be controlled by private businesses. Now, this is tyranny. I mean, if Adolf Hitler had had this kind of system, just think of what he could have done. I mean, this is exactly the same kind of thing. And, and just take a look at Edwin Black's book, IBM and the Holocaust, if you don't believe me, because IBM were working with the Nazis right the way through and in up to the war, making money out of the systems that the Nazis were using, privately controlled holorith machines, uh, punch cards machines, which they were yep. using to uh, to find out where all the Jews were and, yes. and to go and arrest them. It's, and, it's and a very, 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 very frightening precedent. I totally agree with you, yeah. But you see, this is... Yeah. This is in, on, in yeah, but how do we how, how do we know that the Bilderberg meeting was actually discussing this issue? Well, we don't. No, but there may be leaks. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, the uh, German defence minister, one of the security guards, said after the meeting, uh, was sitting right next to Henry Kissinger. So she will probably be the person to replace Frau Merkel when Merkel goes. We don't know for sure if that's going to happen, but it certainly looks likely. And you do get leaks from time to time. I think the other thing is, in a way, you don't need to get those leaks. You just look at what's happening in the world outside. Right. And so many of these dastardly schemes to undermine our freedom and actually destroy human rights around the world, you come back to these guys. Okay, so you're saying it's probable they were talking about this kind of thing. I mean, I did find reference to uh, an EU document called uh, Communication on Online Platforms and the Digital Single Market Opportunities and Challenges for Europe, where they do talk about the necessity for having this ID card. And uh, They'll be looking the justification for that is given as um, online ratings and re- reviews for goods and services. They're very, very helpful, they say, but they need to be trustworthy. So everybody well, needs to be, be accountable looking- in that way. That's the justification for it. So they say... But uh, everything that you've said there certainly gives me pause for thought. What's the real reason for it? Well, they'll be looking for starry-eyed, simpleton politicians and media people to steer this through, uh, that believe in it, that think it's a great idea. You know, there isn't any real comeback anymore. We just get told this is happening. Uh, you know, that, that our MPs, for example, nowadays, I think, are very, very low quality. A few of them realise that their duty is to protect the public, look after the public. But so many, Julian, now are just career politicians who are looking at it as a stepping stone into big business and are easily bribable and easily duped, if you want. Um, some of them don't necessarily realise what's going on. I think don't think Robin Cook realised what was going on uh, when he was told various things about the Gaddafi plot, for example. I mean, and, and it looks like that may have been one of the reasons that he died or was murdered. And you know, so there's all sorts of questions about things like that. You know, where are our politicians? It does show you that politics is important when uh, people like John Smith or Robin Cook get spun out of the situation uh, just when they're in a, an important job. And by the way. John Smith, the former Labour leader in the early 90s, he went along to a Bilderberg conference and I'm not sure if it was two, but certainly one. And what I heard from people who knew him is that he was very vocal there and said, look, we can't do things like this. We're not going to do this at all. The same as Alfred Herrhausen, the German, the chairman of Deutsche Bank, who went to Bilderberg in the 1980s. And he told them we're going to have to end third world debt, forgive third world debt. Uh, Remember, this is in the run up to the Jubilee 2000 campaign. He was saying exactly the same thing. And a few months after the Bilderberg conference, some guy from the left wing Red Army faction allegedly came up and shot him dead in the street. So, you know, this is not going to be allowed by the secret rulers of the world. But John Smith allegedly had a heart attack, didn't he? Yeah, he did. But there's still there were questions about that, you know, about whether he was in fact even ill at the time. And there was anything wrong with him. He was just inconvenient. 
you know, that he was an inconvenient man at the, at the wrong time. Certainly, there's there probably more evidence that uh, Robin Cook may have been murdered because he was taken up into a helicopter or the ambulance of death. And by the time he got to the hospital, he was dead. They wouldn't even let his wife get into the helicopter with him. She was absolutely livid. And I don't put these kind of things past people, these kind of assassination squads. I'm quite sure death squads do exist. Certainly possible, of course. Um, the other thing, uh, one of the things on the list, which we, we know they must have talked about, which is called Europe, Migration, Growth, Reform, Vision and Unity. Obviously, this is foremost in their mind, was the UK's upcoming EU referendum. Now, the received wisdom, as we saw, was that the UK would remain in the EU. That was plan A, let's call it. What would have plan B have been? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Uh, that Bilderberg, by the way, Henri de Castries, the chairman, was calling it, uh, I think around about the time of the Bilderberg conference, maybe just after, saying it looks like it's going to be a Brexit. I don't, I mean, they may have discussed Brexit, but that's not the way these people work. They have decided what's going to happen. And if Britain doesn't want to be part of it or votes out, well, they will try and keep Britain in and they might manage to keep Britain in, but they've already decided what they're going to do. They're not going to change their plans because of what people do in the ballot box at all or what other people think. They've already decided. And that is that they want free movement of labour. And what they'll be doing at the conference is just simply listening to the various journalists and the various politicians to see if they're coming out with the kind of uh, thing that they want to hear, in which case they'll do well. That is to say, free movement of labour. Oh, this is a wonderful thing. So you don't think they would actually have had a plan in place to say let's let's try and get the uk back in in some way should they choose to get out they may well do but the fact is the people have spoken and it's not going to be a democratic plan is it i mean you know there's all sorts of uh ways of bamboozling people to do what they've just voted not to do yes but you suspect they do have some kind of plan that may actually be unfolding as we speak well we shall see i mean yeah i think one of the things is potential crash yeah we're on a knife edge uh, economically, we have been ever since 2008, and uh, people talk about that as a crash. It's not a crash, it was a bailout. Very frustrating to hear it every time I hear someone say it was a crash. No, 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 1929 was a crash. The stock market crashed. All the value of assets, buildings, things like that crashed. That didn't happen in 2008 at all. Well, it did a little bit, but you know, there, there was a bailout to stop it. Now, what that bailout's meant is that we're, capitalism is dead. We have no more capitalism. We have this thing called quantitative easing, which is printing money which is artificial inflation of a property bubble and a stock market bubble, which at some point is going to go bang because the thing is that the stock market prices and the property prices in no way reflect what people can afford to pay for a house or for a building or, or its actual real wealth or the sh- same with the share prices don't reflect the value of a company anymore. So at some point, this is all going to go bang and, it, and that will be the crash. So do you think that the political elite would see Brexit as an opportunity to blame that upon and say, oh, yeah, it's all because of the selfishness of... They look for all sorts of things to blame the crash on, most definitely, except themselves, uh, who are really responsible for it. They will point the finger at Russia. They'll point the finger at China. They'll point the finger at the Brexiteers. Mm. Uh, I actually quite like the Brexiteers, almost like the Musketeers. (laughs) I'm quite happy to be a Brexiteer myself. But, uh, yeah. Even though you're painted as uh, a xenophobe and uh, uh, ignorant, uneducated, unsophisticated, you don't care about young people, want to sling i think you know at the end of the day you've just got to stick to what you really believe in julian and you know not be bullied around by this silly political correctness 
Yeah. I was just looking at a, a little BBC video there with a family and it shows the mum and dad sort of arguing with the, the young sons. And of course, you can imagine what it is. The, the sons are saying, oh, you know, we should have stayed in. And the, the mum is clearly uneducated and talking about Britain of the past and how wonderful it used to be. You know, I just think this is a wonderful piece of propaganda that's put out by a supposedly unbiased BBC. Well, right. I mean, it, everything is being sort of done to make people think anyone that actually bothers listening to this, which, of course, young people just don't. I mean, and if, in fact, in a way, this is another side of all of this, is that young people didn't vote. Now, is that ter- it's terrible, it's considered terrible? No. Actually, I think a lot of people didn't vote because they wanted this to be a decision for the older generation, to leave it to the elders of the tribe to make this decision, people who can remember life before the European Union. Uh, you know, that, to me, is a perfectly reasonable way of looking at it. And and also, they've tried to put this off for years, this whole thing, since the early 90s and the beginning of the UKIP-type sentiments. And that was deliberate. It's in order to make sure the war veterans are dead before the vote. And they haven't managed quite to do that because there's still quite a lot of, of Second That's World War veterans around who actually remember what they were fighting for. So what do you think all this delay in the initiation of the Article 50 business is about? Do you think that's deliberately delaying in order to try and get us back in? Well, I mean, basically, it's Project Chaos, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think the idea is that uh, we just create chaos in the... I mean, the Labour Party coup uh, attempt against Corbyn is just mindless, really, as far as I can see. There is no real point to this, only it just diverts attention away from the infighting in the Conservative Party post-Brexit. And, of course, it's also about the Chilcot report. That's about to come out. And there are a lot of people who are in the shadow cabinet, including Lord Faulkner, who was one of the people who edited the dodgy dossier before it was brought by Tony Blair to Parliament, who are implicated as war criminals in the Chilcot report. And they don't really want Jeremy Corbyn standing up at the Chilcot debate saying, I think Tony Blair perhaps should be arrested and sent down for war crimes and other people, because that's what he's effectively said. He's a man who's prepared to point the finger at people in his own party if he thinks that they are criminals and they've discredited the party and discredited the country. He's a man of integrity and they don't want someone like that around. So when does it come out? Is it it next week it comes out? The week after? I think it's about 10 days' time. Right, so they want him out of the way before that. Well, I mean, they're going to have to try and get rid of him before that, aren't they? But I don't think they will. He's going to stick in it, I think. There's lots and lots of rumours and psyops going around from the Daily Mail and people like that saying, oh, no, 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 he's going to go, he's going to go. We've just heard a rumour, blah, blah, blah. And that's how these psychological warfare people work. They just lie as they do it in, you know, when they were trying to get Gaddafi, uh, just as there was a kind of rallying point uh, in Libya when Gaddafi was about to be surrounded, etc. There was a point where a lot of people could have come to Gaddafi's aid, but they put out a, a whole load of stuff on the internet and on the radio in, in Libya saying he's already dead. So that was just a lie, but it was a lie that was well-timed in order to stop people who supported Gaddafi coming to his aid. And that's the way this kind of thing works nowadays. These London media people just lie at the drop of a hat because they know they can get away with it. There's no real kind of accountability. Once you've got a media which is simply doing as it's told and it's easy to get rid of journalists who tell the truth, then uh, it's, it becomes very, very difficult to have, I think, any kind of real democracy. That is to say, government that actually reflects the real will of the people. The government just gets taken over by an oligarchy, a warmongering oligarchy. And that seems to be the message behind what's happened to Labour over the last few days is Labour Party MPs, not the membership, the MPs, want the party to return to an oligarchy-style uh, pro-war party. 
Yes. Well, I take your point about the Chilcot report, and that's something that uh, Craig Murray uh, made a point about that. But I also wonder whether they want him out of the way, because they've been wanting him out of the way for months, of course. Um, yeah, but it's the because, first time because Britain's the, had an opposition sure. for, what is it, since 19, right. the early 1990s. So we're, what's that? We're talking about 20 years there's not been an opposition. Right. Do you think they also want him out of the way because... Um, you know, they were anticipating a general election in a few years from now, but there's a possibility it might actually be coming sooner than that. And so now there's a, yes, a real pressure to get rid of him because they don't actually want him to, to win. I mean, the, the the ridiculous thing is all these uh, conservative, uh, sorry, Labour, <laughs> whoops, uh, there's a Freudian slip for you, uh, <laughs> Labour MPs here in Bristol, Kerry McCarthy, uh, Karen Smith, and Thangam Debonair have all, uh, you know, resigned and they're all part of the anti-Corbyn brigade. Uh, but what they haven't said as part of the attack on Corbyn is look what he's done since he was became leader. He's doubled, literally, pretty much. I mean, actually, that's since the election last year, but he has pretty much doubled the membership of the Labour Party. So half of the members of the Labour Party are people who've joined because of Jeremy Corbyn. And the other thing is he's won and won and won. Here in Bristol, he, the Labour Party has suddenly got a resurgence in support and um, the Labour Party has taken over control of the city council from uh, an independent mayor. Uh, we've got a Labour mayor now in charge, Marvin Rees. They've taken overall control of the council. They've got more councillors than anybody else where they didn't before. And they've got a Labour mayor. Also, they've got a Labour mayor in London. Corbyn is going great guns. So these Labour MPs are just a vestige of the previous selection system under Blair. They are. I mean, people say, oh, he's not a Blairite. They are Blairites because they were put there by the Blair system. So you're convinced that the grassroots support would be sufficient. So if there is another leadership campaign and whatever the word is, um, that he would actually win again. Well, watch Newsnight tonight, Julian, is all I can say. Yes, okay. yes, I'm totally convinced. I think it's 45 out of the 50 constituency chairs the Newsnight spoke to said they're all backing Corbyn. So these mm. these uh, Corbyn coup MPs may be just like a pack of lemmings. Yeah. Or maybe some of them have been breathed upon by MI5. I mean, I remember Annie Michon saying that everybody has a dossier. I don't think it's quite that, no. I, oh, okay. I think it's much more that you've got... Uh, Big business, the powerful, the rich, all come to see people like Hillary Benn and those that voted before the bombing last year um, of Syria. And they've said to them, right, OK, we'll help you get rid of Corbyn. Let's uh, have a nice little chat down the pub and a few informal meetings. And they've arranged this as a as a coup. It's almost certainly not the Labour Party itself that's arranged it. I think there's a uh, Nafiz Ahmed today did a really good article about the public relations firm, which has been helping uh, the coup. <laughs> so, and it's linked to guess who? Tony Blair's spin doctor, Alistair Campbell. I think uh, I've found that actually. Yeah. So this is the guy called Tom Morchline. Is it the heckler at the Gay Pride? Singled out by uh, the mainstream media. Yeah, you got it. One. That's yep, the one. Yep. So this yep, is yep. the way the world it's really Portland, works. Portland Communications. I went to their website and it says there, we craft convincing narratives and focused messaging, which we use to create compelling content, including speeches, opinion pieces, interactive graphics and reports. And we deliver this content to inform and persuade the audiences that matter. I thought, yeah, <laughs> indeed. And I found that Alistair Campbell is indeed one of the strategic council. Quite right. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're just using basically hostile takeover tactics in the middle of a parliamentary opposition party, Her Majesty's opposition. So this is the way we're going. I, you know, I, don't, I think Corbyn will stick in, uh, hang on in there, uh, because he's a man of principle. And thank God he's I actually met him once, I'm happy to right. say. This was in a press TV studio in the Iranian English language broadcaster. 
and it's awful, but it sounds like I'm bragging, but I'm not, okay? But this is my only <laughs> ever encounter with him. We did a joint program, which was reviewing the papers together. And uh, I sat down in this place, and I, and I said, I'm really sorry, but I, I recognize your face, but I can't put a name to it. So what is your name? So I'm Jeremy Corbyn. In a very sweet, he's a really sweet guy, actually. So my name's Jeremy. I said, oh, so sorry, Jeremy. He says, oh, I know who you are, Tony. <laughs> but it was a lovely encounter and a lovely program. Mm. And it was just beautiful to get a chance to share some time with a man who's absolutely genuine. And let me tell you, I worked when I was working in Greater London Radio with cabinet ministers and all sorts, interviewing them. And you can tell whether someone's a selfish MP or not a mile off. And I would say something like 75% of them are just in it for career prospects. And we need to get rid of that 75%. Otherwise, we're going to hell in a handbasket. I've got to just throw this in because this was uh, obviously this is really facetious, but another way that was suggested, possibly in in humorous tone, of getting rid of Corbyn was I'm going to quote here Frankie Boyle. <laughs> he wrote this back in August. We can safely assume that Corbyn is no longer on the establishment's Christmas card list, but he has been added to their other list, right below the crossed out name of Dr. David Kelly. <laughs> oh, God. Well, it's true. that's typical of Frankie Boyle, but uh, I thought, yeah, there's something to that. But the, I mean, the real battle here is a spiritual battle, I think, between freedom and slavery. Yeah. And this was the same sort of battle which was understood by the early church. I mean, it was basically an underground movement, Julian, you know, up till 320 something when Constantine, it was, you know, basically you had to use secret signs. If anyone found out you were a Christian, you would be stuck on a pole and set fire to on the and light the way into Rome you know that was be your yeah well, your secret fight. signs now are on the back of cars aren't they uh, <laughs> and there's this pathetic um, Darwin fish in competition yes yes well I mean there's always got to be some kind of counter move because actually I think you know in the dark side spiritually everything they do seems to be some sort of uh, attempt to mimic the actual correct way of doing things the real way and that's where i think we you know we we get this kind of ridiculous libertarian kind of idea of liberty uh, which means going actually doing what i want it's not about that uh, it's very very simple and it's all boiled down in galatians love thy neighbor as thyself and if you don't do that may as well not even bother getting up in the morning i think that's basically what all of these mps and everyone that's trying to build a better future needs to focus on and also Article 25 of the UN Charter, which is very simple. It's saying we all need this basic, actually, it says a bit more than this, but we all need, everybody on this earth needs shelter, food, water. And let's just engage ourselves with the mission of making sure everybody gets it because it's well within our capabilities, very simple to do. Let's just get on and focus on the positive and make sure everybody gets human dignity. That seems to me an important message which is getting lost in so much of the rubbish coming out from the occupied media. Yeah. Well, I agree with you, and yet even messages like that can get taken over by corporate interests, can they not? As indeed we've been talking to Pat Wood about that kind of thing, about uh, the UN's good intentions being taken over by corporate interests. So even that's open to abuse as well. But uh, let's hope uh, there is still some goodness well, in the human spirit. A, I don't think putting a roof over your head is really open. I mean, let's just make sure everybody's got somewhere to live. I mean, we've got people living in tents, you know, in shop doorways uh, and being bullied as a result, you know, so... Let's just move humanity forward uh, using 
Article 25 and the similar kind of sentiment as the way to do it because we don't need to be paying all this money for Trident, for wars. Yeah, it's all just a game. It's been going for centuries. Uh, we've got to overturn it. Uh, and I would just like to wind up maybe by talking about one of my – uh, well, I won't say heroes because he's not quite a hero, but he's somebody that explained a lot for me. He's Bill Cooper. He was a broadcaster in the United States mm-hmm. in the 1980s and did this amazing thing, which was to actually predict the 9-11 attacks back in July of 2001, saying there was going to be a big attack on America and they were blaming it on bin Laden. And then after, just a couple of months after the 9-11 attacks, he was brutally gunned down by the FBI outside his house in Arizona. Uh, so anyone that really wants to, I think, get a much wider perspective, that is to say, put in all this in context, just check out uh, Bill and some of the work that is legacy for, because, you know, he's helped me understand a lot about what's going on spiritually, politically, militarily. He was in the naval intelligence and in the, uh, gosh, I'm not sure, was it the Sixth Fleet, something like that? And he was right, mm-hmm. transmitting and decoding the messages to and from the admirals so he knew what was really going on and then he, he decided he was going to share that with the public and I'd just like to think that journalists in London would start doing that now, you know, share what you know we know so much about uh, you know, what's really going on journalists just don't share it, they knew about Iran-Contra in the United States for probably two or three years before a brave journalist called Gary Webb printed it and got it into his newspaper and then he got shot for the privilege of it Gary Webb, isn't that the guy who committed suicide by shooting himself twice in the head? Is that right? I think you've got it, yeah. That's where we're at. And uh, I think this is the thing is that, you know, it goes back to what I was saying about the Bilderberg, Eric Schmidt and the internet monopoly, is that they really are trying to control. I mean, George Orwell said it, didn't he? He who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the... No, hang on. (laughs) I know the one. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe you can find that quote for me. (laughs) I can't get it. But that's actually what it's all about. They want to control the way we see everything. And by controlling the news, controlling the national dialogue, it's like the media, particularly the broadcast media, is like the nervous system of humanity. And we've got people like Murdoch and others pouring sarin gas into that nervous system. Every story they tell, which is half-truths, lies, complete rubbish, uh, you know, anti-democracy, just spinning things in their own personal way. The media is a giant corporation, most of it just like anything else, and corporations uh, want to feather their own nest, and they don't really care that much about the viewers and listeners. I can't find that quote, but I know the one exactly you mean. Um, so I'm going to say no, Tony. Thank you ever so much for coming back on the programme after a three-year gap. It's always interesting to speak to you, full of fascinating information. And, uh, of course, you are very controversial, but that is... Well, I hope so. <laughs> yes, indeed. You said before the interview that you hope that that's the case. I think there's a great little quote. Actually, this is an Orwell quote we do have. If liberty means anything at all, it means to ro- the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. George Orwell. Absolutely. So at least I did get a well quote. <laughs> yes, I've got one in there. Oh dear, I do wish I could find that other one. Yeah, he's warning us. He was warning us. Read his stuff. Animal Farm, particularly, but also the other stuff as well. You know, The Road to Wigan Pier. What a guy. He saw where it was all heading and he wanted to make sure everybody got a pre-warning. Sure. So thanks very much for inviting me on again. Thanks, Tony. Good to speak to you. Um, is it still Bilderberg.org, your website? Still keep well, this that going. Week, the best one is thisweek.org.uk. Thisweek.org.uk. And also dialectradio.co.uk. Okay. And how do people find your show? Because not everybody's in Bristol, obviously. What's That's on thisweek.org.uk. Yeah, you'll find okay. it there. Either okay. podcast to download or you can listen live on a Friday. Marvellous. 
Okay, thanks very much for coming on again. Good to speak to you. Cheers, Julian. Take care, mate. God bless. Bye. Okay, well, thanks for listening to that interview with Tony Gosling. Uh, Tony, as you no doubt will have picked up there, is one of those people who just has so much to share with us that it's really quite difficult sometimes for me to get a proverbial word in edgeways. But uh, that's okay, because uh, he's got a lot of interesting information to bring to our attention. And uh, yes, as I said, he can be quite controversial at times, but that's a good thing, isn't it? Because, well, what would the world be like if we didn't have journalists like Tony who are prepared to ask some uncomfortable questions about what's going on in the world around us without regard to political correctness so it's good to speak to him again and as i said in the interview do go back if you haven't already heard it and listen to our 2013 bilderberg interview with him that's tmr number 22 so quite a way back uh, because there he shared with us what he called both the official and the unofficial histories of the bilderberg group fascinating conversation and you can find that by going to the interviews tab and following the drop down menu for for 2013 or by going to the topics tab and following the nwo drop down item and just before i put you in the picture as to what's coming up next week let me say thank you again to everyone who sent messages to me of appreciation for tmr um, as I've said before, it's always a huge encouragement to me. Uh, it really does keep me going here. And a big thanks to Marbles Found, who posted the latest review on TMR's UK iTunes page. Thank you ever so much for doing that. That was a lovely review, and I very much appreciate that. Marbles Found. Next week, we should be speaking with the talented visual artist and political activist Anthony Frieda for a discussion on his approach to political art, which I'm very much looking forward to. And uh, he is a man who has many mainstream clients, such as Time, The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, The New York Times, and numerous other publications. But he also has a number of alternative media clients as well, such as Code Pink, Activist Post, Washington's Blog, Global Research, Cindy Sheehan's The Soapbox, and The Trends Journal. And The Village Voice commissioned Anthony Frieda to illustrate a story in 2006 about people who challenged the official narrative about 9-11. And uh, the piece that he created with Dan Zollinger is now part of the permanent collection of the U.S. National September 11th Museum in New York. So I'm very much uh, looking forward to having a chat with Anthony Frieda. And our friend John Masseria created a documentary about um, Frida's meeting with the curators at the 9-11 Museum, which I've linked to in the past, and I'll put up in the show notes for this week. And while we're on the subject of films by John Masseria, John has a new film project underway, which I have been privileged to preview, the first part of it anyway. Um, it's called uh, I Love My Country But Hate What They're Doing, and it's a really professional quality and uh, thought-provoking project, which is projected to be in three parts. It's well worth supporting uh, because it really is impactful, uh, looking at the way in which the country that he loves, the US, has become increasingly swallowed up by what Eisenhower famously called the military-industrial complex with its uh, inherent need to perpetuate war around the globe. So I do encourage you to go and check out the film's campaign page and do consider backing the film to keep that project on the road, which, uh, if you contribute, of course, gives you access at the moment to part one. And I'll put up a link to that as well in the show notes. 
So returning to the schedule, in the following week we should be having our third interview with Tom Gailey discussing uh, subjects around his book America's Post-Christian Apocalypse. And then in the week after that, an interview with Dr. Mitch Stokes, who has written an, an unusual but certainly intriguing book that I'm reading at the moment called How to Be an Atheist, which sounds like some kind of training manual, doesn't it, for how to live well as an atheist or something. Uh, but the subtitle, I think, explains more, quote, why many skeptics aren't skeptical enough so i'll leave you with that as somewhat of a riddle and i'm especially looking forward to that conversation because dr stokes uh, had the great fortune to study with one of my heroes alvin plantinger uh, who no doubt you've heard me talk about uh, mention at least several times on the podcast so lastly please do consider leaving a comment and or rating on itunes uh, if, you, if you like the show that is otherwise uh, don't because <laughs> um, i could always do with some more and uh, there haven't been many actually for quite a long time uh, but don't forget that really does help people to find the mind renewed so that's it for today thanks again for listening you have been listening to me julian charles of the mind and i very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future